Ho ho ho, and welcome back to the Horror Autopsy, where we dissect the visuals of horror to release that Christmas gooeyness. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Yes, uh, I'm Ed. I'm Paolo. And we are the Horror Autopsy, coming to you with a special Christmas episode where we're going to be talking about three Christmas horror films and a little bit about what that means. Uh, but before that, let's talk about what we've seen recently, um, as we usually do. So, Paolo, what horror film have you seen recently? Anything good? So, I uh, recently went through DVDs and picked out all the ones I hadn't seen, which there was surprisingly a lot of. Yeah, um, he has a lot of DVDs. Didn't, they weren't all horror films. Well, but let's talk about horror films. Though John Saxon was in one, we'll get on to him at some point. So, uh, the 1981 adaptation of the Edgar Allan Poe uh, story The Black Cat, directed by the late great godfather of Italian gore, Lucio Fulci. Oh, yeah. um, considered by many one of his least violent movies, uh, but still obviously had some great gore. Mm -hmm. uh, David Warbeck's in it. Very atmospheric, actually. I know you caught, caught the last 20 minutes, you didn't look too enamored by it. I was not really watching it properly, to be honest. But uh, yeah, it looked interesting. Uh, a lot of cats, a lot of cats killing people, which is uh, always pretty cool. Great, um, usual sort of style of Fulci, a lot of eyes. Um, great cast as well. Forget his name now, but he's in uh, another film I watched, which was a Hammer House film called Demons of the Mind, uh -huh. um, which was surprisingly quite dark from ha Hammer film. Kind of dealt with um, incest and witches, and um, it's got the same actor. I forget his name, uh, but I'd recommend those two. I also watched Hanzo the Razor, the trilogy, which not exactly a horror film out and out, though there are elements of horror. Um, also very cult niche, I'm sure there are those creepy guys out there who are like, oh my god, Hunter the Razor. Second one was very good, first one was passable, third one is kind of more of the, the same problematic gender Yeah, so, um, <laughs> yeah I, I caught about um, 20 minutes, half an hour of one of these films uh, yesterday, um, and problematic was, uh, yeah, my go-to word. Uh, very male-gazy and gratuitous, and I would just leave it as that, because... Uh, yeah, it's pretty gross. And on the topic of male gazy gratuitousness, and on the Christmas vibe train, Night Train Murders, okay. um, which is the Italian version of Last House on the Left, which Last House on the Left was the American version of Virgin Springs. Basically the same setup, except two girls are going home for the Christmas holidays. They get on a train, and there's a recycled number of Italian actors and actresses who have been in multiple Argento movies. Yeah, gratuitous violence towards women. Yeah, sounds like that's uh, your cup of tea at the moment. Uh, there is a recurring theme here. She just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. Okay, cool. Yeah, they sound uh, pretty interesting. Uh, myself, I saw them a few days ago, the uh, French Extremity movie that a um, French couple who are living in Mar uh, Romania in this big house and one evening people break in and try to kill them. I won't say much more than that because I think that spoils the film a little bit, but it was actually for such a basic kind of setup. And I sometimes find this with home invasion movies that they're a bit, um, you know, not much really happens. Uh, this was really, really good actually, really effective. Uh, not very gory for a French extremity movie. And yeah, like, yeah, bleak and nasty, but um, not overly so, um, and a really, really good ending. I also saw, finally, Halloween Ends, which I think you had seen the last time we recorded, but I hadn't, so we didn't really discuss it. Um, I can't remember exactly what your thoughts are on this movie, but I was actually pleasantly surprised. It wasn't very good, but I went in thinking it would be 
utter garbage based on the previous two films, particularly um, Halloween Kills and the reviews, which I think were actually a bit unkind because the reviews for Halloween Ends were pretty brutal. But I thought it was kind of okay, actually. I thought it was a bit different from the first two, introduced some new sort of interesting characters. It was a sort of version of Michael Myers that we hadn't really seen before, which was cool. Um, and yeah, and Jamie Lee Curtis was as awesome as she always is. Great. She kicks so much ass. She's a queen. She's she does, a horror yeah. queen. Yeah, it was really cool. I, I liked it. I like the fact that it kept in, in the tradition of the original trilogy, you know, where the third one is a bit of yeah. a, an odd an odd one out. I mean, it's not going to break, you know, sort of the mould. It's not game-changing. But, goddammit, for, you know, this is Halloween we're talking about, you know, where we've had many incantations of, you know, the Rob Zombie one, you know. And I guess you've actually, we did discuss this in an earlier episode, but you've seen all of the other Halloween movies, and there must be like ten or so now. Yeah, I dread the thing happening, rather. Yeah, a multiple timelines. But hey, look, the cramps were in it, the dead Kennedys. It's great. Yeah. It was really good. Yeah. Yeah, it, yeah it, was, it was okay. It yeah. was like two and a half out of, uh, two and a half out of five, maybe three, depending on how kind I was feeling at the time. Say, yeah, I'll go two and a half, maybe. Um, but anyway, we're not talking about those films in too much detail because we're talking about Christmas horror films as we are in December and the holidays are approaching. Hello? Have you checked the children? children. children. Uh, so I'm just going to talk a little bit about Christmas movies and Christmas horror movies and how I think those two are defined. Oh, good, because I was about to ask what that meant. Okay, what does a Christmas horror movie fantastic. mean? Well, I will tell you. Oh, good. So, I think Christmas movies are fairly sort of uh, self-explanatory, although there is often a bit of debate about what does and doesn't constitute a Christmas movie. But generally speaking, a Christmas movie is a movie that is set at Christmas and usually and, and Christmas is sort of integral to the plot in some way. And they usually typical Christmas movies sort of have uh, themes of sort of togetherness and family and love and religion sometimes as well. And then Christmas horror films, I think, usually explore these ideas as well, but in a sort of dark and twisted and spooky way, and, and often sort of subvert these ideas and do some you know gory, creepy, often supernatural horror stuff with them. So, what is a Christmas movie? Uh, there are typical, obvious Christmas movies which sort of spring to mind when you say the term Christmas movie, like It's a Wonderful Life, uh, Elf is a, is a go-to one that's a bit more recent, Love Actually is definitely a sort of holiday classic. Obvious Christmas films are centred around Christmas. Christmas is very much the driving sort of narrative within the films. But then you also, there, there are also some other Christmas movies that are a bit more up for debate, like just because a film is set at Christmas, does that mean that it's ne necessarily a Christmas movie? So, like, um, Die Hard is the obvious one, which always gets brought up there. But also, uh, Batman Returns as well is set at Christmas. But does that necessarily make it a Christmas movie? I, I would say yes. I would, I would also, incidentally, say yes about Die Hard. I You're think. also missing one very important one. Go for it. Nightmare Before Christmas. Of course, a Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, classic, uh, classic Christmas movie. Um, incidentally, yeah, Die Hard, it's... So my sort of general rule for Christmas movies is it needs to be set at Christmas and Christmas needs to be integral to the plot. I know people have said that the fact that Die Hard is set at Christmas is pretty incidental and it's not a Christmas movie. But John McCain is coming home for Christmas to see his ex-partner and they are at their Christmas party when they're taken as hostages. So Christmas is integral to the plot. Die Hard is a Christmas movie. I've just proved it. Well, it, it doesn't even need to be like important to the plot. It's set at... If it makes you feel Christmas, you see a mm. Christmas tree in a movie... 
You're like, okay, cool. This has got Christmas. Even Frasier has like episodes around Christmas. Yeah. Why not? Like, sure, like, they're not sitting around philosophizing what Christmas means, mm. but if there's Christmas with, if if it's important enough for it to be mentioned, then yeah. I know some people will argue that uh, because um, Deep Red, the a very important, even though the first scene, a very important flashback happens at Christmas, yeah. some people are pushing it for a. Well, Christmas that's exactly my point. Just because a movie is set at Christmas, or or even five minutes of a movie is set at Christmas, does that automatically make it a Christmas movie? Or does Christmas need to be the focus of the movie? Uh, at least happening in the backdrop. You know, mm. like, because I've heard people say Deep Red, I've heard people say The French Connection because Santa's in it. Yeah. One scene, I don't know, because then you'd have to use the argument if there's, you know, one scene of sort of morbid curiosity happening, doesn't it automatically make it a horror film? Yeah, I suppose. Yeah, yeah like I'll... Well, that's exactly my point, really. I think that for a Christmas movie to be a Christmas movie, it needs to be set at Christmas, and the, the, the plot and the narrative needs to involve Christmas in yes, some way. Yes, in some sense, whether it be the backdrop, whether it be something yeah. like Child's Play, where, you know, it's a plot device that happens around, you know, she needs mm-hmm. a toy because it's Christmas. But yeah, as long as there's some... Um, you know, there's a chemical effect to it, then sure, yeah. you, know, you know, if it kicks the plot off, mm. then yeah, sure. Okay. But yeah, I, I actually think that these uh, three Christmas movies tackle use Christmas in within their films in quite different ways. Actually, um, we can talk a little bit about that in more detail. Um, so yeah, should we talk about our first movie, or do you have anything more to sort of say about Christmas horror in general? There needs to be more of them. Yeah, and, he, and I doing all this prep for this podcast made me realise that there needs to be more. There's not, there's not that many, actually, and a lot of them, I think, because of the holiday season kind of tone, a lot of them um, sort of delve more into horror comedy, which, yeah. I think, which two of these films that we're going to talk about uh, do, and one definitely doesn't. And I think I would like to see less trivial Christmas horror, you know, given you've got the classics like Silent Night, Deadly Night, uh, Christmas Evil, um, even and the, Silent and, Night. And, and I think the first film that we're going to talk about, for sure. And the first one we're going to talk about for sure, like, no points if you guess it, because it's pretty obvious. It's in the title. Um, Probably we haven't edited it yet. But, yeah, I just think there needs to be more of a genuine attempt to make a scary Christmas horror film. Child's Play, again, the first one's probably the least comedic, but there are still moments of of laugh out loud humour. So, yeah, more serious horror Christmas films, please. Okay, well, I think that's a good segue, because I think uh, the first one we're going to talk about is definitely a serious Christmas horror movie, wouldn't you say? Seriously. Yes, we're uh, talking about Bob Clark's 1974 Canadian horror movie, Black Christmas. My mother's taking a place up at Mont Holly's. Anyone else want to come? Yeah. Sounds like fun. Great. How about you, Claire? Uh, no thanks, Barb. I've made some other plans. Jingle bell, jingle We're just having a little party. Now the jing- hey, quiet! It's him again! Jingle bell, jingle bell rock. Listen, you pervert, why don't you go over to Lambakai? They could use a little of this. Jingle bell square in the frosty air. Yeah, I was supposed to meet my daughter here. Her name's Claire Harrison. Do you know her? I'm sure you'll find her at the fraternity house. Have you seen Claire today? No one knows where she is. No, not since last night. Hello? 
Some of the girls are over here today, but I haven't seen Claire. Well, what the hell are you planning to do about it? 90% of the time, girls are reported missing from the college. They're at a cabin somewhere with a boyfriend. A high school girl's been murdered. Claude? Claude? obviously upset about something. I'd like to talk to him. Can you tell me where I might reach him? The caller is in the house. Oh, come on, this is a sorority house, not a convent. Are you up there? Jess? You can't rape a townie. Black Christmas, really titled Silent Night, Evil Night in the United States of America, is a 1974 Canadian slasher film produced and directed by the late and legendary Bob Clark and written by A. Roy Moore. It stars quite a chunky amount of Canadian horror royalty, including Olivia Hussey, Claire Duluvar, Margaret Kidder, Adrian Martin, Lynn Griffith, and of course, the legendary John Saxon. You obsessed with John Saxon recently? Who isn't obsessed with John Saxon? Just all, all the time here. And same with Art uh, Art Hardy, who was in a lot of Cronenberg films. Again, Canadian sort of reference. Mm. The story follows a group of sorority sisters who receive threatening phone calls and eventually stalked and murdered by a deranged killer during Christmas time. Mm -hmm. Who gave it away? The film then descends into a murderous rampage where sorority girls go missing, John Saxon saves the day, and a mysterious killer living upstairs. Does John Saxon save the day? Well, he's the only one that kind of bothers to... He's, he pushes stuff forward. He's the one that... He's the only half-decent, um, competent police officer in this film, for sure. Upon its release, Brat Christmas received mixed reviews, but has since received a critical reappraisal, with film historians only for one of being the earliest slasher films, as well as praising its influence on, of course, John Carpenter's Halloween, which came out Absolutely. a few years yeah. after. Yeah, I think there'll be quite a few comparisons between this movie and... Uh, Halloween when we're discussing it as well. It turned itself a cult classic and like I said boasts quite the stellar cast of famous horror specifically actors and faces. The film is inspired by the urban legend The Babysitter and the Man Upstairs uh, which actually real uh, real life case that took place in uh, Quebec and more specifically the 1950 murder of a teenage babysitter named Janet Chrisman usually cited as the influence for the main film. Um, like I said Olivia Hussey Margaret Kidder, John Margaret Saxon. Margaret Kidder is, I know you're all about John Saxon. Margaret Kidder is so good in this movie. Like genuine, she's not in it for that much, but I'd say genuine Oscar-worthy performance. Ooh. I think she's just so edgy and likable and sort of charismatic, but there's also a sort of vulnerability to her performance as well. I really, really like her in this film. I think she's good. Margaret Kidder, I think, really helps boost this sort of emotional connection with her character specifically, where you realise there are moments of humour that really help build up the characters. Yeah, I did notice this. Um, empowered and strong women, and specifically her, she really sets the tone for a lot of the, the, the characters. These, these characters aren't sort of cannon fodder in the same way. You know, th th this film is more interested in building up characters. Subplots that, I mean, still to this day, I think it, you could argue is still a feminist movie. You know, oh, de yeah. it deals with things like abortions, pregnancies, specifically the older generation's attitude towards 
liberated, free sexual women, or women who were free and liberated sexually. And the landlord is trying to cover up all the hippie symbology around her house because of her uptight dad who thinks it's appalling that his daughter's going out getting with boys and drinking eggnog. Though it's a fun slasher movie, I think it is dealing with women's repression within the 70s, you know, this older generation of men who are trying to enclose women into how they think the world should be. Even, you know, the older uh, housemate, you know, she's she's a bit of fun, you know, she's a bit of an alcoholic, she enjoys she having a good time. Yeah, she's definitely an but, but she isn't denigrated for it. None of these women are denigrated for being free and being liberal, but I don't think the film is saying women get back into place. I think it's almost sort of just using the trope of just sort of a twisted man who just seems to dislike women or feels that they are somehow an easier target. Um, and these are strong women in this film. Yeah, I think yeah, I think the um, female characters in this film are definitely sort of um, yeah women who are comfortable talking about their sexuality, and it's not like a lot of other films like like Halloween, for example, where there are Laurie's friends in Halloween quite one dimensional and only really seem to think about boys. These characters do talk about their boyfriends and the fact that they have sex, but there is much more to them than that, and I think the sort of bond between them and their friendships is something which um, really sort of shines through in the film. They are, you know, very concerned for each other's safety and actually do seem to like each other a lot, which is not really the case in um, Halloween. Yeah, the, the housekeeper as well um, is a den mother character um, for the girls. Um, and a lot of humour is derived from that. So I said at the beginning that um, this film is not really a horror comedy. There is quite a lot of humour derived from the sort of quirky characters like the housekeeper like the um the cop at the front desk who i think might take the title for worst most incompetent moronic cop in a horror movie he is absolutely useless um and just does a lot of damage and sort of um downplays the fact that the girls are going missing like, oh yeah i'm sure she's done probably sort of one of her boyfriends i think the film does as well as having uh, feminist characters has a bunch of male characters who are sort of useless and quite, you know, um, up themselves and judgmental. And the, fil the film is poking uh, fun at these characters and showing that the female characters are the, the protagonists that we should root for. Apart um, from John Saxon. You're right, he, he is the only he's the one. in this movie. Not quite the most... He's not <laughs> the um, greatest actor of all time like you seem to think he is. But whatever, John, yeah, John Saxon's perfectly fine. Uh, you also mentioned the fact uh, that abortion is addressed in this film and I think I, I was very when I first watched this I was very surprised that the main character the protagonist of this movie in is um a girl who has gotten her boyfriend's got a pregnant she doesn't really you know her and her boyfriend are sort of going through the motions um she's planning on breaking up with him and she says to him early on in the film yeah I'm gonna have an abortion and that's uh, for a film in 1974 I thought that was uh, very brave for it to actually broach that topic let alone have your protagonist uh, saying that she's going to get an abortion and not do it in a way that's judging or sort of demeaning her. In but the film's on her side. Even Absolutely, when she tells yeah. the boyfriend and he's... Oh, the boyfriend's an arsehole. And, and the film knows that. And the film is really, really pushing you to, to side with her, right? Olivia yeah. Hussey's character. Yeah, I, th I think in that moment you realise you're dealing with... with Bob Clark really understood like, how to elevate. It wasn't even... I guess maybe now we talk about you know, exploitation cinema or sort of grindhouse movies. You know, like, That wasn't really a thing... Even though it was, they weren't really sort of doing it with the knowing yeah. pasty. So he really knew how to elevate his characters and make it yeah, more than just a you know, absolutely um, slash. for sure. Um, to be fair, I don't think we've really talked about the actual um, horror of this 
film yet, let alone the uh, Christmas mm -hmm. um, of it all, which I'll come back to a bit later. But I found this film actually, um, again, for 1974, fairly sort of shocking. I think it's not very violent, but I think the threat feels very real. Um, I think it does seem quite explicit. I think the, the, so the opening shot, similar to Halloween, is a POV shot of the killer murdering one of the girls in this sorority house and whose body is then um, kept in a rocking chair in the attic with her sort of eyes wide open in terror for the rest of the film. And the film sort of keeps cutting back to this dead body along with the killer who is up in the attic for um, pretty much all of the film making these quite shocking, terrifying phone calls to all these girls. And the killer in this film as well, I think he's handled a little differently to like, uh, you know, Michael Myers, Freddy Krueger and um, Jason and all those. He's a bit more enigmatic, really. You don't see his face, but that's all done through sort of shadow and sort of, you know, blocking and sort of camera trickery and yeah. things. He's not wearing a mask or anything. Um, and he does seem a lot more full-on crazy and deranged. Well, I've put animalistic. Like, instantly, the film, you know, from his POV shot, he's instantly, like, shuffling and breathing heavily. It's almost, I think, more of a, maybe a moral depiction of that. You know, the killer isn't in any way cool. It isn't in any way, no. he doesn't have a cool, you know, like, lumbering, you know, probably asthmatic individual who's just, mm. Just a bit of an animal. And, you know, the, the phone calls you mentioned were quite explicit. And yeah. they recorded it with different um, actors That's on the it, phone. Yeah. But it just has this really frantic, quite sketchy, kind of um, mm. lurid, explicit tone to it. Even though yeah. he doesn't... You know, there are murders in the film, but it's very artfully done. Um, but his yeah. what he says to them is, is really, really explicit. Even, you know... 2000 and well, yeah. almost 2000. Well, it's, it's mostly just yeah, you know, typical lewd, horrible, misogynistic phone mm. calls, um, which is very shocking. We also don't really, I mean, we don't know much about Michael Myers, I guess, in the first Halloween movie, but we don't really know anything about Billy. Uh, the only thing we really find out <laughs> about him is his, is his name, but we don't know why he's there. We don't know who he is. It very much uh, sets up in this film that uh, Jess, our main character, that her boyfriend, Peter, who... Um, who has gotten her pregnant, uh, it very much sets him up as being the killer. And then at the end of the film, you discover that it's definitely not. I've heard speculation that the killer actually might be Jess herself. I don't buy um, I don't buy this at all. I think there is a, that, you know, it's a, it's a character that we never see apart from when he's killing people. It's not like secretly one of the other characters. Um, and we, yeah, we, we never find out why he's there. We never find out who it is. I did wonder if you could actually decipher a bit about his backstory through all the phone calls and the different weird stuff that he's saying, but I, I, I don't know. I think it might just be a bunch of rambling. Actually, this is really the only slasher film that doesn't go for the big bucks and kind of isn't actually that concerned with who the killer is, nor is it interested in trying to sort of build this whole plot and mytho behind yeah, it. Yeah, um, which, which often pisses me off a bit in horror movies because I just find it a bit fan service -y. And And I've always said this, the more the more mysteries around a, a a horror film and a horror killer in the scarier it is the more you explain and the more backstory you give it's you, not scary exactly yeah. you know you can sort of rationalize it i think yeah. his character is very irrational you know even mm. by the phone but it's just this erratic yeah. sort of like vomiting of, of sort of language it's um and i think in a sense it, in, in some regards it has a leg up on halloween so i when i first watched in this, some regards but so when i first watched this film um I don't know, like, uh, only a couple of years ago or so, I didn't really like it that much. I felt it was quite slow. I didn't feel it in age that well. Um, I just thought it was a bit of a drag. I liked it a lot more on my second watch. 
Um, it is obviously, yeah, like we said, it's compared a lot to Halloween because there were both two slashes that came out in the 70s that, that set up a lot of typical horror tropes. John Carpenter did um, actually talk to Bob Clark after he made Black Christmas and sort of said, what would your idea for a, a sequel be to Black Christmas? And he, the, what the sort of conversation he had with Bob Clark was uh, very influential in how in Carpenter's idea for Halloween. So these two films, I think, are you know inevitably linked. I definitely do prefer Halloween. I think the first, for me the first sort of thirty minutes of Halloween before it actually gets dark, before when you know when Jamie Lee Curtis is just sort of seeing Michael here and there stalking her. I think that's some of my favorite. That's some of my favorite stuff in all of horror. I think it's so well done and so well directed and so well it's a little more surreal i think it's going for slightly different sort of yeah emotions like um (coughs) black chris is is much more of a it's a bit more grimy you know it's got a bit more realism to it. you know um i think halloween is is kind of invoking kind of the argentos of the world you know it's sort of using the darkness as a kind of artistic sense yeah i suppose in an artistic sense halloween does feel a bit more artistic this is more of a sort of nuts and bolts horror film slasher you know Mm. there's a maniac in the attic uh, incidentally, they never they never find him as well at the end. That's a bit more. They never even bother looking in the attic. They never look in the fucking attic. It was driving me insane. Like the whole house is a crime scene by the end after everyone's dead, and they realise there is definitely a killer at large. And um, Peter's dead, and Jess is been she's unconscious and she's been sedated at this point. And then all the cops leave, and then we cut to up the attic. And Billy starts ringing the phone again, and all the cops. <laughs> no there. one has searched the attic. I think, and the implication is probably that Billy just goes downstairs and kills Jess like ten minutes after um, the camera cuts. Mm-hmm. Bob Clark was such a great filmmaker. He he understood where the limitations were, and <laughs> sometimes less is more. Dare I say? Dare I ever say that out loud? Um, yeah. And I think Black Christmas is testament to that. I think. Not to take away from the artistic merit of it either. This film is really, really wonderfully framed, really wonderfully photographed. Yeah. Um, the you could take frames out of that and pin it on the wall. I really like movie. the sort of the first and last shot just of the of the, the house. house. I, I think that is just very um, iconic. And I like the POV stuff that they've got. Give you know, it, it was about five years before Halloween, but it yeah. still feels like some. It feels explicit. If you know, it feels even though it's a bit similar to Texas Chainsaw. You don't really, you don't really see much violence. In fact, I'm not sure you really see any violence, but it feels like you do, and it does feel like it does feel explicit and a bit um, um, dangerous. Dangerous is the word. The, the, yeah, there's def- there's a real threat throughout the film, um, and it it does sort of keep you on uh, the edge of your seat because you're not quite sure how far they're going. Yeah, take it. I I think it's actually maybe one of the the. Better films we've covered on this podcast, actually. I yeah, I, I, yeah. I, I, I'm, I liked it a lot more the second time. Like I said, I was. Um, it's not a perfect film. Um, I think that some of the performances aren't great. I think I do think uh, Olivia Hussey as the as Jess isn't great. <laughs> she spends a good five minutes of this film just going hello, yeah, hello, with no, the killer calls. No, I don't. I, I for some, it's just also a British accent. Her very weird, dry, yeah. square British accent. Yeah. But yeah, as I was saying earlier, Margaret Kidder is really, really good in this movie. Is one of the other sorority sisters. Um, just the best performance by a mile in this movie. I just really, really like her. Um, and she went on to become quite a big star after this. She is um, probably Lion one of the more established. Superman. Yeah, yeah, of course. She's Lois Lane in Superman. Yeah. yeah, only a couple of years after this. Um, yeah, very good performances. But Clark didn't really do a tremendous amount more than this, did he? It's a shame because he went out doing Baby Genius part one and two which as a kid I remember really liking 
Um, but he, okay. unless I'm horrifically mistaken, he had quite a sad way out of this world. He, right? Yeah, I'm just reading. Died in a car crash now. with his yeah. son. Was he, he in a car was, crash with his son? The, yeah, it was quite sad actually. Yeah, him and his son were um, hit by a drunk driver in 2007 and both killed. But yeah, even after sort of yeah, Black Christmas is probably the only like really iconic film that most people would sort of um, know about. I'd say Porky's and a Christmas Story. That was it. A Christmas Story is quite famous, isn't it? Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things. That was his first film, which is a great, great um, comedy horror. Death Dream. That was the other movie, Death Dream, which was great. Um, sort of an anti-Vietnam slasher movie. But yeah, um, I really like this film. Um, it's up there with my favourite horror films. I, de I definitely prefer Halloween and Halloween, I think, mainly just for the rewatchability. I just I will never get bored of that movie. Um, this is... I think the, the, the pacing is maybe not quite as good. Um, there's quite a lot going on, sort of, you know, there, there's humour, there, there, there's stuff, you know, they're, they're talking about abortion and there are you know, a lot of uh, feminist themes as well and there's also this killer. There is a tremendous amount going on in this film and I think sometimes it can seem a little bit messy, but I think what it uh, makes up for in that is how influential it was. This is one of the first horror films, came out in 1974, so one year after Exorcist and the same year as Texas Chainsaw. So it definitely was a trailblazer in setting up a lot of classic horror tropes that we know today and that we see in uh, lots of movies. And this movie has been remade twice. Yeah, one with Idris Elba. Is Idris? So I haven't, the first seen, remake. I haven't seen the 2007 or whatever. There's a, you know, mm. The first remake was mid-2000s and the second remake was only a few years ago. Mm. And uh, was a Blumhouse production uh, billed as the sort of feminist adaption of Black Christmas, and I thought it was absolutely terrible. I think it's one of the worst written movies maybe ever made, um, and not scary to the point that I would even question calling it a horror film. Agreed, even though I liked it more than you. Mm. Um, well, I, th I think it was a 12A, wasn't it? So there was no... It was a 15, I think. There's no, no gore, no, no horror. It steals from lots of other movies. Um, I like all the feminist stuff that's in the more recent... In, um, Black Christmas movie, but I'd say the original actually has better stuff to say about feminism, and that film came out nearly 50 years ago. And the first remake kind of doubles back on the whole abortion thing and uses it as a killer plot device. Oh, it's, well, that's frustrating. Yeah, it's. I, I think it's up here. I think Black Christmas is one of my favourite slasher films. Cool. Uh, so, yeah, I think that covers about everything that I want to say about this movie. This, this is the, the more of the overt horror film, I think, that we're uh, going to cover. The next two are a bit more light. Yeah, I, I think this is the, the, the ubiquitous Christmas horror movie. Yeah. Um, also, fantastic sound design. Um, yeah. All the way through the film, like, there's so much that is just done by, on the mixing track. You know, you don't even, a lot of it, actually, I can't, I can't even imagine them just putting dubs in overwood. So, like, the, the phone call, the way that they hear the killer potentially upstairs. Yeah. Um, the kind of weird animal noises. I think the sound design <clears throat> is great. Um, the only other thing I have to say is that I do feel like, in terms of a Christmas horror movie, as going back to what we said at the beginning, I feel out of the three films we're talking about on this episode, Christmas feels the most incidental. Yeah. In this, I feel like you could essentially set this film, because it is just, at the end of the day, there is a killer in the attic, and he's slowly killing people. That, you know, Christmas does play into it, because some of the characters are going back for holidays, one of the characters' dad is supposed to meet her, take her back for Christmas. But you can essentially set this film any time of year and not really change that much about it, and the film would still play out in the same way. Agree. I don't know if the emotional connection would be. I mean, there it gives it a good atmosphere. Um, I mean, being at Christmas and stuff, and it, it, it's good for the, the production design and stuff. This 
Christmassy house. But also the loss, a little bit more, you know, the, the reason the dad's there is because he's seeing you for Christmas, you know, yeah. the, 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 the idea of like, the, the one time a year you're meant to supposedly be safe. I, I think it really, even though it is in, it's the, it's probably the, lead, the, the most incidental film to deal with Christmas in the three films we're covering, I still think uses Christmas and subverts the meaning and then the, the supposed feeling behind it of safety is just coming along and just going, hey, your kids are probably going to yeah, die, you know. I suppose so. And I suppose, it in, yeah, it isn't that what a Christmas horror film should be about, about, you know, setting you all up with this nice Christmas and then violently snatching it away from you. Dreams. So, I think, I think that about covers uh, Black Christmas. The next film we're going to talk about, um, I'd say is a much more, sort of, probably the most popular uh, of the three. I think, I, I, I know so many people who absolutely adore this movie. And this was probably one of, if, if you call it a horror film, I suppose that's maybe brought into debate. If you call this a horror film, this is probably the first horror film that I ever saw, I think. Oh, right. Okay. So I we're going to say something. You're never on the same page. No, we were going to say something. We say something okay, very good. I want, I want to know. Uh, yeah, this probably was, I think, the first horror film that I actually saw when I was maybe like 12 or 13 or so, when I was fairly young. Uh, yeah, we are doing Joe Dante's 1984 Gremlins. What is it? It's your new pet. <laughs> Number one, you got to keep him out of bright light. Number two, keep him away from water. This is incredible. And probably the most important thing, don't ever feed him after midnight. Billy, what are these things? Gremlins. How come a cute little guy like this can turn into a thousand ugly monsters? That was Mrs. Deagle. I'll bet every kid in America would like to have one. They might even replace the dog as the family pet. Struggling inventor Randall Peltzer goes into a shop in Chinatown seeking a Christmas present for his son. He finds a mogwai, a strange, exotic, fluffy animal, and tries to buy it, but the owner says that it's not for sale. The shopkeeper's grandson secretly sells the mogwai to Randall, giving him three rules that he must follow to take care of it. Don't expose it to light, don't get it wet, and above all, never feed it after midnight. Randall comes home and gives the mogwai to his son Billy, who names him Gizmo. He's told about the three rules, but he eventually accidentally spills water on Gizmo, which causes several new mogwais to spawn. These mogwais, including a one with a silver streak on his back, which Billy calls Stripe, are more aggressive and mischievous than Gizmo, and eventually trick Billy into feeding them after midnight, which causes them to turn into green scaly monsters, or gremlins. Billy and a few other characters, including his badass mother, who is not in the film anywhere near as much as she should be, Managed to kill the gremlins, however, Stripe goes to a nearby swimming pool and jumps in, causing hundreds of gremlins to be produced. The gremlins attack and wreak havoc upon the town, killing many of the residents. Billy teams up with his love interest, Kate, who, halfway through the film, tells a horrific story about her dad, who broke his neck whilst climbing down the chimney dressed as Santa Claus. And as a result, she hates Christmas. Billy and Kate manage to blow up most of the gremlins in a cinema whilst they're watching Snow White which is then followed by a showdown in a shopping mall where they have to kill Stripe. 
The film ends with a man from, the man from the Chinatown shop at the beginning of the film coming back to the Peltzer household and taking Gizmo back with him, stating that family weren't careful enough and can't be trusted to look after the Mogwai. Uh, you know, there's a few more things going on in the movie than that, but I'd say that's a rough sort of summary of the film. I hadn't actually, even though I'd seen this years and years ago and I always think of it as being a really good Christmas movie, I hadn't actually seen it in probably about 10 years or so. And I'd forgotten how good it was. This film is just so much fun and so funny and scary at times. Like I mentioned, that sort of monologue that Phoebe Cates does about her dad, the reason she doesn't like Christmas because, yeah, they found her dad in the chimney. That's, that kind of comes out of, no, of nowhere and is a really dark, sort of chilling scene, which definitely stayed with me the first time I saw it. Uh, the, all the gremlins are great. The sort of um, puppetry work mm. that they do just looks... So good and really, really holds up. Uh, the dad, so I mentioned the, the, the dad of this family, who's, again, not actually in the film that much, but he's a um, sort of budding inventor. and he create, He's got all these wacky inventions, like the shaving buddy and um, the he's, he's like travel stuff. And they all just go, like stuff in the kitchen as well, like wacky kind of toasters and things. And they all just malfunction and end up um, causing chaos. Reminds me of that episode of The Simpsons where... Homer tries to be an inventor and just ends up trashing the place. It's really good. Uh, but yeah, what do you think of this film? I want to tell you, I hadn't seen it in ages and instantly remembered how much I loved this film. Yeah. What a joyous celebration of all that is good. Fantastic characters. You know, it had, you know, the film was produced by Spielberg and you can feel... I forgot about that, yeah. You can feel that very wholesome vibe all the way through. You know, I think really at its heart, even though it's a very wholesome... It is, a whole, film. it is a whole thing. I think it has a vaguely anti-capitalist notion. A little bit, yeah. Um, as, and as well as actually um, highlighting things of tradition and uh, the sanctity of nature, as opposed to the darkness of greed. You know, most of the shortcomings for the characters are brought on by their own greed. Exactly. So, they're, it, yeah, I think that you're hitting them on the head there. So they are told about the three rules. And, 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 and yeah, initially, this um, man at the Chinese shop, he doesn't even want to sell... Randall uh, the Mogwai because you get the impression he's, he's, this has happened before uh, but you know some moron American tourist has sort of come along bought the uh, bought the Mogwai not listened to the rules Mogwais end up causing havoc and I think this film is sort of satirizing sort of like western ignorance and carelessness and laziness and selfishness and the fact that yeah you're told this is very important but you go yeah, 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 whatever and then yeah, yeah, oh yeah I'll feed it on you you can just so imagine that if you gave a Mogwai to your friend and say, don't feed it after midnight, that a month then they go, oh, we can give it a little bit of chicken after midnight. What's the worst thing that can happen? Having all these sort of like underlying sort of messages of anti-capitalism and, and also um, quite a nice attitude towards Christmas where actually the film's, I think, version of Christmas is very, uh, it's not at all um, physical, it's not at all materialistic. It's about having like your family around, you know, sort of yeah. respecting and sort of really appreciating this magical time that we're in at the moment. It's a, it's a it's a feel good film for sure. Um and yeah the um the, their family are a sort of loving family and everything. I think this sort of um subversion of Christmas is through the uh, story about um Phoebe Cates' dad who trying to do something nice and Christmassy for the family ends up accidentally dying and that and as a result that destroys their family and they are no longer able to sort of enjoy Christmas mm -hmm. really because they just associate it with. Uh, her dad's death. And yeah, I think what, what the things I remembered from this film um, were sort of the look of the gremlins and 
that story has been the case itself. I think it is a, a very iconic moment in horror that kind of comes out of nowhere and is um, was quite inspired to sort of add in. I agreed, yeah. And, and almost almost as, as a warning as well, you know, it's like, don't let your spirit die, yeah. you know. And that's probably the most realistic horror of the whole film. Yeah. Um, also, not to mention talking about Invasion of the Body Snatchers, uh, the film that they're watching, I mean, the film, I think, where this influences on its speed, you've got EC comic books as well as 50s creature features. The two films they're watching, <clears throat> one of them is A Wonderful Life, and the other one is yes. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the um, Don Siegel original. And I think that okay. totally sums up where the film's head yeah, and heart The film is a, essentially a combination of, uh, of those two with some creature feature stuff. Yeah, minus the anti-communist yeah. hate and more just sort yeah. of anti-capitalist. Yeah, um, interesting. And Dick um, Miller as well is great in it. Yeah, it's good, yeah good cast. Uh, Jonathan Banks, uh, right. i.e. Mike from Breaking Bad, shows up as another incompetent cop for about five minutes or so, which is very fun. He shows up in a lot of 80s movies like Aeroplane and Beverly Hills Cop and it's always weird to see him young and with hair. <laughs> but also... Uh, great physical comedy in this film. Everything from the slightly kind of like whimsical to the dad's sort of botched experiments to <laughs> the awful Karen-esque woman who gets thrown out of a window. Yeah, that's great. Um, great animal design. The scene in the um, when they're in the bar and it, it's, it's probably about a ten-minute scene of the gremlins just drinking and smoking and gambling. <laughs> They've all got costumes on at this point. There's a bit where they're carol singing as well, mm -hmm. and they go to the trouble of putting scarfs and like hats on and stuff i think that's what i really like about the mogwais and when and the gremlins when they eventually um devolve into their gremlin form is that they kind of just want to have fun they're causing chaos and they're killing people but they're just sort of these you know like giggling mischievous children really that just but that also want to revel in debauchery and excess mm -hmm. well you said when we're watching it they're basically the id and i think that's yeah kind of i'd like say so yeah summed it up really <laughs> again i don't know how much of that is meant to be uh like an expose or a criticism of sort of sort of wild capitalist culture yeah. during christmas I, so and just... I think it's there is a little bit of it there that, that is definitely there in the film that it's sort of satirizing capitalism and commercialism i don't think it's any coincidence that the final sort of showdown between billy and strike the sort of lead bad um Gremlin takes place at a big department store with lots of toys and stuff, and they're sort of using toys and things as weapons. You know, he strikes going around in a toy car at one point. Um, that is definitely there. I don't think it's quite as overt as the next film we'll talk about. No, no, is, no, 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 yeah, no, no. Which I say that is kind of primarily what it's about. But yeah, it, it's it's definitely there. But I'd say still at, a, at its heart, this is a sort of family Christmas movie with, that just so happens to also have lots of gremlins and stuff that are killed by the characters in elaborate ways. Again, yeah, I mentioned the awesome mum who is, gets her time to shine in a sort of 10-minute sequence where she just kills three gremlins in her house, including one that she puts in a blender, which is awesome. And a microwave. Yeah, and a microwave. I also thought it was interesting, I don't really sort of thought about this today, that the dad isn't really present during the film. He's sort of away on business whilst the town is getting attacked by these gremlins. And I definitely thought it seemed significant that he was the one who bought the Mogwai into this town and then leaves and is not present at all whilst any of the chaos is happening. It's men. Is that it? It's just it's men. men. <laughs> it's men. With no sense of responsibility. No. No. Yeah, we suck. Some do. But yeah, I, 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 just, I just love this movie. It, mm -hmm. is, it, it is a staple Christmas movie. I would call this, I, I think of this as a Christmas movie before I think of it as a horror movie. Yeah, agreed. I agree. I think the film, it, it does that as well. You know, like yeah. I was saying, you know, it, it, it's playing with the kind of EC sort of vibe where, you know, the, the horror is, it's playful. You know, it's yeah. not at it's, all. Yeah. 
the threat is definitely there. Like the, the gremlins kill a lot of characters. They do, but but you you're not sort of wincing and hiding yeah. away. You know, you're more kind of going. Well, actually, she kind of did deserve it. Not that yeah. mad came to kill people, but the, the police were kind of stupid. You know, it's it, I suppose that most of the characters who die are like, yeah, that there's um is um Billy's science teacher who he sort of takes the gremlins to. He doesn't really respect them or like pay attention to the rules and stuff. And and he's killed. Yeah, the horrible old woman in the bank mm. is killed as well. And I think we're all cheering when she dies. Well, there's no like him. emotional connection with the violence. I mean, you kind of separate, which adds that comic book. Yeah, you know, you. you you know, it's not like they, you know, they kill the mum or they kill the dog. No, or anything, yeah. Do you know what I mean? And the no. dog kind of saved, part, partly saved the day. Where yeah. he, uh, what's his name? Billy, Zach, what's his name? Billy, uh, Zach Gilligan. Zach Gilligan, yeah. You, you, you said it was a bit of a heartthrob, huh? Ah, still a heartthrob. Yeah. Look at okay. that, look at that 80s heartthrob. I've never seen him in anything else. Waxwork, which no. we have to watch at some point. It's got uh, also the other heartthrob from the original Twin Peaks, I forget his name. And um, David Warner. The, the yeah. horror is very light in this film, but this was the first horror film I watched and it was a bit of a gateway into getting me into more serious horror films. And I think that is the case for a lot of people because you could show this film to a 12-year-old and it would be perfectly suitable. It's funny that it's still a 15, though. Okay. Because I don't know how much... Uh, I, okay, so uh, Gremlins and Indiana Jones' Temple of Doom were the two films that, funny enough, both uh, Spielberg connected yeah. were that helped change the rating system in America, which brought in the PG-13 rating. Uh, because both those films were like a... Either a hard PG or a soft fifteen. Yeah. So Spielberg basically went to the, um, the not even the, the, FCC. the FCC, the FCC, and sort of tried to argue that kids could see it if they were accompanied by their parents. And those two yeah. films, this one specifically, brought in the, the new age rating of a PG. Okay, interesting. I can see that. Which yeah. has now been the kiss of death for horror. Yeah. <laughs> when things now are PG thirteen. Yeah, I still remember when we saw Alien vs Predator. I was like, oh, it's a twelve A. There's gonna be no gore yeah. in this movie. Great. But funny enough, I mean, I think actually Gremlins is probably more violent yeah. than, uh, than yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't need gore and stuff for a film like this because there's so much. That, you know, sure. There's, there's some... But it adds the squishy. Yeah, a little bit. But yeah, I'd, I'd say I would show this film to a 12 year old, maybe, you know, 12 year old who's got a bit of bite to them, I would say would be perfectly suitable. I guess, you know, you could get the odd 12 year old who might be terrified by this film. <laughs> but this is why I don't have kids. I don't have much more to say about Gremlins. There is a sequel that I haven't seen, but I'm sure you have. It's good. Christopher Lee's in it. Dick Miller's yeah. in it again. Um, it's all set in an apartment. No, an apartment block. Like an office block. Okay. Um, there's a flying gremlin in it. Um, there's a trans gremlin in it. Oh, um, okay. And again... Well, there is a gremlin in this one who is yeah either trans or in drag. Yeah. And it's actually handled kind of well. You know what I mean? It's not a sort of... Um, it's not like it's not a... Joke at the expense. Of it's not a joke at the expense. No, it's it's yeah. just like again, this gremlin just happens to wear women's clothing, and the other gremlin will dig it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great, great. Joe Dante is fantastic. But a great opening as well. You know, the kind of the one of these films that's, that almost feels like it's already happened in regard to the rules. You know, don't get them wet. No bright light. Don't feed yeah. them up. These are almost like like ingrained within people's you know, I the, the, the pop the, culture the, the three rules yeah they, they become very iconic especially don't feed it off a midnight yeah. you know that's the great one great that, great you know yeah, excellent, yeah, excellent. yeah, yeah. Excellent. I just love the um, is it Joe Dante who does the voices for the gremlins oh I don't know um, I just feel like it must have been but it just it seems like the sort of thing he would do but I do love the the, 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 the way they talk is usually just sort of babble but the odd, you can make out the odd word and you always know what they're saying I really like that tasty mm, yeah <laughs> Right. Um, yeah, I think that just about covers Gremlins, wouldn't you say? Yeah, it's um, it's a joy that it's actually quite a light whipped cream type film, you know, yeah. with, with 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 a bit of sour 
gone off cream. Yes, yeah, just a little bit. Yeah, that's uh, cool. Yeah, cool. Big up Joe Dante. Yeah. So our next film, I think, is the film that really kind of uses Christmas in an interesting way and actually kind of utilizes it and bakes it within its themes. And that is the 2010 film Rare Export. It's the most magical time of the year. When traditions are honored. And the youngest among us still believe in the spirit of the season. something else than just plain rocks and dirt. This mountain is like a giant icebox. For storing what? Drill deeper. Prepare the dynamite. You have a grave to rob. Minkälaiset sulet tekee? Hyvä joo. Finnish fantasy horror film directed by <laughs> Jalmari Hendler, I think, is how you say it. Jalmari Hendler, yeah, that looks right. Yeah, right, yeah. cool. Finnish filmmaker. Yeah. yeah. Who also directed Big Game, which I've not seen. Uh, but it stars Sam Jackson and Oni Tamala, who's also in Rare Exports, this film. Oh, okay. Set at the base of Mount... <laughs> Some Finnish mountain. Yeah, it begins with a K. Rare Exports follows this, a young son, Pavroti. Pavrotai? There's going to be a lot of names that I'm going to botch this. If there can't pronounce very well, yeah. If there are any Finnish people out there, I'm deeply sorry. Though you should kind of message us. I hope we have Finnish listeners. Patroli. I'm going to say his name is Patroli, who is played by Omi Tamali. And, uh, and the hunter father, Ranagulu, played by Joma Tomala, uh, who, with the help of family and friends, must survive a night after Krantmus and his elves are uncovered and defrosted. Based upon a Swedish commercial company short movie called Rare Export Inc., which follows three men who are on the hunt for a wild Santa Claus. After an online premiere of the film, directed by Jamali Handler, received positive reviews, funding was given for a short sequel called Rare Export. Who would have thought? It's Rare Exports. Well, actually, no. This one is called Rare Export, the official safety instructions that came out in 2005, which was a precursor to this. So there were two shorts that were sort of then built upon. Okay. After a few years that allowed both shorts to gain a small cult following, the director and the producer, Petri Jovanata, uh, went around and tried and successfully found funding for their third, which was an in initially meant to be a short film, which then became, as we know, Rare Exports. 
and it was initially set up as a uh, trilogy to explore and decipher the real foundings and basis for Father Krumpness, mm. as we call him, Father Christmas. The film was released in 2010, in December, uh, all around the world, to positive reviews by critics and the public alike, and still maintains a 90% of what's mine. Ah, okay. Who would have thought? start, the film is a wonderfully realised project through and through. Uh, Jamali Handler's grip on the film's themes and ideas is fantastically confident. Like He, he fully understands that you would hope so after making two uh, short films. The tone throughout the entire film is pitch perfect, walking a fine balance between black comedy, horror fantasy, along with an ever-present offbeat wackiness. The film definitely walks to the beat of its own drum. Blends of the, the kind of mixture between a sort of Spielberg sort of action film mixed with this kind of Stephen King style sort of horror film. Yeah. And uh, I think it's played really straight face, which kind of saves the whole the whole film. Mm. Because of that, it puts it right in the annals of a cult movie. You know, little quirky ideas give the film a lot of personality. They're peppered throughout the film, the beginning of the film, um, specifically where it sets up. Almost the thing, basically, where these scientists find this frozen, unknown thing. It is, it is yeah, definitely um, referencing the thing, I think, a lot. I, I think also the fact that, yeah, this film takes place entirely in the snow and uh, the winter. And I, I don't think there's a single female character in this film. No, there isn't. Again, much it like the thing. Men, yeah. Even though I think the sexual politics are somewhere in the background, because it brings up the fact that uh, Tamali's mum passed away. Yeah. And that these... You know, the dad is emotionally dysfunctional, and the, the, yeah. the son that hasn't got that ability to it's, deal it's with It's a bunch of men who don't know how to communicate with one another, or or, or, or know how to break shortbread. Yeah, um, who end up, you know, again, I, and that sounds sort of throwaway, but actually, I think that is quite yeah, an important part of sure, the film. Yeah. I think the pacing is is, is expertly done. Um, the characters are fantastically written. You know, even though it's quirky, it's not self indulgent. And yeah, this really like this, wins. This, it's got a sort of dark sense of humour to it, but I think it's a yeah that it plays it fairly straight. So the, the film, in a nutshell, in this uh, Finnish sort of village out in the snow, um, we know that something is that there is some mining going on in the big mountain nearby, where some German businessman is essentially looking for Santa Claus, some like monstrous version of Santa Claus. And this uh, village nearby finds uh, one of Santa's elves who is this weird old man who um, they eventually, they, they, they realise he is one of Santa's elves, um, along with a few others. Um, and the ending of the film involves them blowing up this monstrous version of Santa Claus before it can be defrosted, because the implication is that he's going to take over the world or whatever. Uh, and then they start packaging up these elves uh, and selling them as rare exports. So it is, we see a literal commercialization of Santa Claus, um, which is exactly what this film is, is tackling. It is a satirical takedown of capitalism and the commercialization of Christmas. Agreed, but actually on top of that, how poisonous what we now perceive the message of Christmas to be. Yeah. Which is, take, 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 you know. We, yeah. You know, it's not about, you know, the, 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 the home comfort. It's not about the burn uh, gingerbread men. It isn't about yeah. the neighbour. It's about getting the biggest present and sending it to, to show how yeah. much you actually care exactly. about it. Exactly. Well, it's, it's all about stuff. Stuff, yes. You know, having things... Um, and I like that the film sort of, and um, Krampus, that other Christmas movie, did this a little bit. A bit like Gremlins. As well. And well, Gremlins as well, but it's looking at the dark mythology of Santa Claus, that Santa Claus is not this, you know, like red, uh, you know, red person in, uh, red jolly person and stuff who's going around giving toys to Christmas. There even is a line uh, in this film which says the Coca-Cola Santa is a hoax. So this commercialised version of Santa Claus, which has been created to sell stuff, is complete bullshit. 
and Santa Claus is actually this dark figure that sort of, you know, eats eats the, the bad children and stuff and takes them away. Um, and that's what happens in this film, that all of the kids, apart from the uh, the main kid, whose name I'm not going to try and pronounce. Petrovi, I think? Uh, so, yeah, on Christmas morning, they're all kidnapped by the elves because they're bad children. Um, and they're sort of put in this sack ready for sacrifice. They're all, all rescued and stuff. I don't think any kids die in this movie, do they? No. They, 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 they threat, but they Yeah, they, they spare the kids, though. Uh, but I like that, that it looks at the dark, bloody version of Santa Claus and not this pink, fluffy version that we always see. And moving more into that is actually... Because the film puts you in the headspace of Tamale. Um, of Omi Tamale, the, the actor that plays yeah. the um, And I think the real mission statement of this film is where the children are more like adults than the adults are. Yeah. And the kid instantly is afraid of Christmas. The, uh, yeah, the fact that he believes in Christmas and believes in Santa Claus is kind of crucial to how they end up taking down Santa Claus and, yeah. and Santa's elves. So yeah, the, the Santa Claus, it's like the, the, the opening scene of this movie is this German businessman who says there is something in this mountain, you have to mine it, blah, 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 it's very important. Um, halfway through the film they say it's still alive, whatever it is down there. And then later on we see this big, it, 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 it's still they're still thawing it out, but he's in this big block of ice this huge version of santa claus with tusks and some you don't see it properly but this monstrous looking version of santa claus that's what this german businessman is trying to mm. take and and presumably sell ever you do don't fall asleep sort of going into that i think the set design is incredible yeah uh, the fact it's almost like kind of takes even though it doesn't take place in one location it sort of feels it, it does. There's only a few... I guess it all takes place in this one fairly small town, doesn't it? Well, actually, do you want to know a fun bit of uh, trivia? What? This film had the same budget as Sharknado. Really? Believe it or Which not. Which was? Um, quite a low amount, I don't know. Okay. But, um, they, I, I, again, the, the, the reason I think this film is really... I think actually kind of a cult film is that it has a heart and a soul. This film, there's a lot of quirky, fun things that are going on underneath. Yeah. Uh, and there's a point to it. You know, it isn't... Given Gremlins, uh, there are elements of sort of themes and messages, but I think the film, uh, Gremlins, is much more about having fun. Yeah. I think this is a very sly, um, sharp critique on the Western idea of Christmas, yeah. the Western idea of family, and actually more kind of the, the whole idea of what a, a Christmas movie could actually be. Yeah. Um, and I think, personally, it's a cult classic. Uh, I mean, I so I uh, I'd seen Black Christmas and Gremlins before. The um, first time I watched Rare Exports was for this podcast um, a week ago today, um, and uh, yeah, I really I really really liked it. I'd heard a lot about it and it had been on my list for ages, but yeah, I'd, I'd never seen this film before. Obviously, it's newer than uh, hmm. the other two, but yeah, I think it has become like fairly sort of um, a bit of a dark Christmas horror staple. Um, in the sort of um, ten or so years since it was released, and it's become yeah, I think is already an iconic horror film and Christmas film. Agreed, and it, it's scary up until a point. I think the first time I saw it, the uh, the elf was quite spooky the, 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 the until little, yeah until until it becomes a kind of Spielberg action film. I think the oh, one okay, criticism right, yeah. is that it is kind of scary until okay. So you're saying it starts off as a horror film and then becomes something a bit more? Uh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think the well, at least for me, I think the there was atmosphere and sort of dread and and, and yeah. it, it was it was up until the point where they're in a helicopter yeah. and they're defrosting the, the, yeah, the, the, the last twenty minutes when they're sort of running around the sleigh and stuff is a bit silly, and I think at that point it's forgotten that it's, it's a horror film. It's more of a Sort of, yeah, Spielberg mm. action film. Um, yeah, I think that yeah, the um, the threat is definitely more present at the beginning, and there's no you know 
same as Gremlins. You can show this film to a twelve-year-old. There's no violence. More so, I think. Yeah. I think the the, the um, design of having these elves as these creepy old men who sort of slowly sneak up on you and stuff is quite frightening. But yeah, nothing uh, nothing ever really bad happens. No, I think that's a scary. But you know, when you have those shots of like you just see the silhouette of the old men in yeah. the in the trees. That's scary. But then you see a whole swarm of them. Yeah. And it's like, well, it's actually kind of more yeah. joyous, but you know what I mean. And then they managed to sort of um, trick him using gingerbread. That's it? right, yeah, which is a great shot. I like how it uses the lore of Christmas to um, how they, yeah, how the characters sort of overcome uh, the antagonist, and particularly the uh, child protagonist, uh, how he, he he's, do he's doing all this research into Santa Claus at the start of the film and stuff, because he genuinely believes that Santa is going to come and uh, kill them all, which is exactly, is exactly what happens. Mm-hmm. Yeah, sure. I think yeah, I think I really like this film. I think yeah, like you were saying, is there some sort of toxic masculinity um, stuff going on in there? There are no women in this house. The main character and his dad have quite a tense sort of relationship, mm. and I think you can tell yeah that you can you can tell there is a hole that has been left after their mother passed away, which is quite sad. And throughout the film, the uh, the kid he's carrying around like this kind of like sack thing mm -hmm. that is almost like a pet to him like he's a really lonely kid after i didn't really feel for him in this movie well this is it i think even i say you say toxic masculinity i agree to a point i don't think masculinity in this film is toxic it's just shown as just a bit confused and not kind of sure what i think, a lot, of, I think a lot of the adult male characters are you know um typical sort of men who don't want to talk about their feelings the dad's mm. a butcher as well mm. he's, he's cutting out meat and stuff which is a very like traditionally masculine kind of job and he, he, he seems to find more passion doing that than spending time with his son well i was gonna say i feel he, he knows more what to do i don't think he's he's he doesn't want to be distant from somebody he doesn't know the input that scene where they're talking even though they don't say it even though they're talking about the mum passing the yeah. ginger, and he leaves the gammon in the in the in the oven overnight yeah um i don't think yeah i don't think that they're, they're, it's toxic but i just think it's it's kind of sad and a bit yeah and not toxic in a sort of um um, sopranos yeah not, not toxic in a sopranos kind of way yeah more more toxic in it you, you feel bad that this father and son can't really communicate mm. properly because they don't so, know how you know. yeah exactly it's on amazon prime so if you've got amazon prime you can easily watch this other two ones we watched on dvd so i don't know if they're available to stream i'm sure you can find Grand uh black christmas is actually playing in the cinema near to us um on december 14th or something so it looks like maybe a few places will be showing Black Christmas around the holidays. Odium. Yeah. Well, if we hadn't just watched it, I would be up for going to see it because I think it's sort of film I would like to see on a big screen. I think it looked good. Yeah. It's on a big screen. Um, yeah. Uh, what is your favourite movie out of these three, Power? And also Black Christmas. Okay, Black Christmas. No, I think Rare Export. Ah, they're all great. They're actually all fantastic movies. I think. I think probably Black Christmas. Okay. Um, I like what Rare Exports does with its subtext. I think that is the most interesting film. But I think the most fun is Gremlins. I think they're all at least a four-star film. Okay. Um, but yeah, Black Black Christmas. John Saxon. Okay, fair enough. And uh, what's your favourite Christmas movie? It's a Wonderful Life. Yeah, fair. Yeah. Yeah. What about you, Um, I'd say my favourite out of these three is Gremlins. I, I like Black Christmas a lot as well. But again, like a lot more the second time I watched it. But Gremlins is just a classic, man. Like it's just it's just so much fun. I laughed out loud mm. multiple times throughout the film I, I there there are so many things i like about gremlins um there are things i like about black christmas well. and rare exports is good rare exports is probably my least favorite of the three um but yeah def definitely gremlins um 
and favourite Christmas movie, obviously Die Hard. I knew you were going to say that. I, I knew, I I knew you were going to say Die that. Die Hard is one of the few films which I watch every once a year, always around Christmas. It is my go-to Christmas movie. Home Alone 2, 1 and 2 as well. Home Alone 1 is great. Home Alone 2 is... Yeah. It's comfortable. You know, it's, yeah. a, it's a safe sort of, you know... The, the, I, I put the, the first Home Alone is amazing. The second Home Alone is... I wouldn't lose much sleep if I was told I could never watch that again. I would. Actually, yeah. I, have, I have a soft spot in that. Fair enough. The cunning warrior attacks neither body nor mind. Tell me how! The heart, Osborne. First, we attack his heart. I'll tear your fucking heart out, girl! Hello! Bid our father, the Sea King, rise from the depths full, foul in his fury. Black waves teeming with salt foam. You don't like me cooking? We've reached that part of the show where Willem is discussed. Of, of course, course, you know, this is one of our USPs. No other show in the world's doing this. No, no, we are the only, probably the only podcast with a Willem Dafoe segment, for some reason, on a horror film podcast. But, uh, yeah. He's been in genre stuff. He has been. And you're not going to do, hopefully that. Not yet, not yet. <laughs> so I should be asking you, what has Willem been in this week? Wooden Phone has been in Inside Man, which oh, is a yeah. 2006 <laughs> Spike Lee movie, which I just happened to watch in the last month, uh, and was yeah pleasantly surprised to see Willem Dafoe rock up in a, in a supporting role as a vaguely racist cop during this heist that's happening in a movie that I don't really understand why Spike Lee's directing it. It doesn't feel like a Spike Lee movie, um, and it's perfectly fine. Willem Dafoe is perfectly fine. In the movie, um, but that yeah, that much more to say than that. Really, that's what Willem has been in this week. Uh, how about you? Any Willem appearances in your filmography? Finding Nemo. I went uh, home last week, and now there's a newborn. Not mine, I might add. Uh, of course, uh, every Pixar movie is on, and I was re- uh, on my phone, and all of a sudden, here, <laughs> of course, Willem Dafoe's in it playing. I forget his name, they're not Scar. I couldn't tell you his name, but he's the main fish in, in the fish tank that Nemo ends up in, that Australian dentist. He yes. is the, the leader of their fishes, who's this, like, grizzled fish who's been, you know, in this tank so long that he's, you know, he's... Kind of looks like Willem Dafoe. Yeah, he, it's, it's good, it's very good voice casting there. Um, I love finding Nemo as well. Exceptional. However, exciting news for everybody, really, in the entire world. Wow, really. God bless Christmas. Um, there's an upcoming film with R. Willem, called Inside, which is a psychological horror film about a cat burglar, or an art burglar, who manages to break his way into this um, really swanky, um, sort of like floor apartment, uh, with high-tech security, and gets locked in. And it's basically about his mental breakdown and his relationship to R. <clears throat> it's directed by a first-time director called Vlasilis Kasopopoulos, which I'm assuming might, is a Greek name. Um, I only seen the trailer. Um, I couldn't think of anything better than watching Willem Dafoe trapped in a an artistic uh, sort of pad and going slowly insane. Yeah. So that's very exciting. I think it's coming out next year, early next year. Fair. There are already too many movies called Inside. Yeah, there are. As, as I've just seen. You got you got the French movie and the remake to that, and you got the Bo Burnham um, oh, comedy, yeah. comedy special as well. So um, they botched that title. But hey ho, maybe it'll be really good. It looks great. The trailer looks fantastic. Is he the lead? Yes. He's okay. the only cat. He's the only uh, him, and I think it's basically him and 
the the cleaner lady. I don't mean it's a very small cast, but it's majority yeah. him going mad with yeah. some artistic lighting. I was hoping it was directed by Abel Ferrara, but next time. Yeah. Okay, well, that's what Willem has been in this week. A couple of things for you to uh, check out. Do, 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 do. You want to know what happens to an eyeball when it gets punctured? So you got any idea how much blood jets out of a guy's neck when his throat's been slit? We are doing the quiz. Yeah! For sure, yeah. So, uh, how did we leave it last time? I lost. won. <laughs> so now we're even, right? We're... One, yeah. one win each, and this is our third quiz segment. That's yes. right. Cool. Uh, who's going first? Losers first. Fine. Okay, question one. In The Strangers, what is the name of the person that the girl asks for when she first knocks at the door at the start of the film? Saxon. Saxon. <laughs> it's like a final answer. Yeah. It's not Saxon. It's Tamra. It's Tamra Holmes? You know, remember that? I've only seen it once. Oh, that's very good. Um, what is the first horror film that appears on the IMDb Top 100 Movies based on rate user ratings? The Exorcist? No, no, funnily enough. I thought that I thought it. The Exorcist or The Shining would, would be there. So, I would have accepted two answers to this, actually. Out of the wall. Number 25, and I saw seven, I thought, that's a horror film and it's not really. And then Silence of the Lambs, which yeah. I think... Both of these are thrillers, but Silence of the Lambs you can definitely include as a horror film. I would say Seven I would include as a horror film as well. But I have to go all the way to number 70-something to find The Shining and Alien, which are the only two films on there that I would say are overt horror films. Uh, So yeah, people that like horror films, which is a shame. Well, this is something we've discovered during this podcast, actually. uh... But anyway, uh, so yeah, you got that wrong as well, because you said, what did you say? The Exorcist, which I don't think was even on there. I, I don't think Exorcist appears on the top 100 list at all. But anyway, people have terrible taste. Um, question three. I don't think you're going to get this one, but maybe. Which actor appears in the second season of American Horror Story, Asylum, as a serial killer dressed as Santa Claus? Festive question. Cuban Gooden Jr. No. That, 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 that was my idea. Yeah. Ian McShane. Oh! Good old Ian American Horror Story as a killer. So you got no points. I got no points. So don't start celebrating. Oh no, I'm probably not going to get yours either. Okay, so what was the first horror movie to win an Oscar for best makeup? Alien. Is the right answer? American American Werewolf. Uh, Then he went for that. Alien won visual effects, didn't it? Okay. American Werewolf. I should have got that. In the 1981 slasher flick, The Burning, what is the killer's weapon of choice? Uh, garden shears. Okay, fine. Uh, uh, okay, fine. I didn't actually think we'd get that. Okay. I've already beaten you, so. What is the name of the goat that played back Flip, Philip in The Witch? What is the name of the goat that played him? The real name of the goat. I have absolutely no idea. You don't want to haggle a guess. Goaty McGoatface? Yeah. Should be. Uh, fuck, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um... That's so hard. Who the hell would know Charlie. that? Charlie. <laughs> Who would know that? No one. That's I feel like I knew that in the back of my head somewhere. No, you didn't. Because if, no you, watch, if you watch till the end of the film, it's got the credits and the name of Black Philip. Charles. Charlie. Sorry. Well, I still got one point. Well, you got no points. So I win. That means I'm winning the quiz segment. We're now 2-1.
I can be that next time. Yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll see. Yeah, I'll be that. Candyman. Anyway, so that wraps up the films, the Willem segment, and the quiz segment, and that's all we've got for you today, guys. Um, let's take some time out. This is a special time of year, so yeah. you know, let's make people feel nice. You know, if you've got an auntie you don't really talk to, say hello to her. Yeah. Smile at the woman in the shop. Some people, you know, don't have anyone to go to home at Christmas, so be grateful. So let let let's spread the joy this year. Be good to each other this year. Yes, and Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays.